Well, in 1963, the Kennedy administration created the Emergency Broadcast System. This gave the president a means of addressing the nation in the event of a nuclear attack. Thankfully, the system was never used for that purpose. But it did leave behind a legacy. If you lived in the 60s like me, you remember this experience. You'd be watching television when suddenly a test pattern with strange symbols and different lines and configurations appeared on the screen. It was followed by a shrill high-pitched siren. And then a voice that said, This is a test. If this were an actual emergency, you would have been instructed to tune to one of the broadcast stations in your area. This is only a test. Well, I got to admit, as a young boy living at the height of the Cold War and in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis, whenever that announcement ran on the television, it caused just a little tinge of fear in my heart. Is this the one? Could this be real? And the most comforting words were, this is only a test. And when difficulty strikes my life today, it's vital that I recall this phrase. This is a test. Sandy, this is only a test. If this were an actual emergency, you know all too often what we assume are emergencies are really just tests. Understand, God is not surprised when my life encounters adversity. He doesn't hit the panic button. He isn't puzzled and groping to make sense of my situation. The living God is in charge of all of life, good and bad. He's in control of the very circumstances that are stressing you and me out. In fact, if we listened real close this morning, we'd probably hear God saying to us, this is not an actual emergency. It's only a test. This is a test. Peter learned the truth of this at the foot of the cross. We're approaching the Easter season. And for most folks, the cross is an emotional experience. It should be. Contemplate the cross. What Jesus endured. Its intensity. Its totality. It reminds us that the cost of forgiveness is steep. It's expensive. The cross stirs our passions. At Mount Calvary, grown men choke back tears. But hopefully, that's not all we learn at the cross. For the person who stands there long enough to look through the tears and to see past the emotions realizes that the cross becomes our tutor into spiritual truths. You see, the crucifixion of Jesus revolutionizes our perspective on pain and trials. Jesus on the cross challenges faulty assumptions. He gives us strategic insight. This is what happened to Peter. From the beginning, he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But his concept of what Messiah came to do was transformed at Calvary's cross. Peter knew that one day Messiah would reign and rule. But the necessity of the cross provided to Peter, or proved to Peter... That grieving precedes glory. And that death comes before life. And that it's pain 
that ultimately blossoms into pleasure. In short, Peter learned that trials are necessary. Faith has to be tested and refined through the fires of hardship. If the suffering of the cross was part of God's plan for his own son Jesus, Peter realized that pain and suffering would also be a feature in God's plan for his life. And let me add, God's plan for your life too. In fact, Peter got to a place in his life where he appreciated the crosses and the trials. He embraced them, thanked God for them, even rejoiced in them. And he wants us to do likewise. Rejoice in the hardship God sees fit to allow. Peter writes this to us in verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What a message. Now, as a pastor, I deal with people's trials on almost a daily basis. And I know, I've seen, I've lived it. Life is hard. Sometimes our sin makes life harder than it has to be. But life is tough even when you do right. In fact, at times, life becomes tougher when you choose to do right. Life is full of surprises, and many of them are unpleasant. And I know Christians who experience a setback or two, and then they act shocked that it could happen to them. They respond as if somehow faith in Jesus exempts them from this type of trouble. When in reality, just the opposite is true. Real faith is a lightning rod for hardship. For faith has to be tested. And when faith gets tested, it's easy to react the wrong way. You remember Job's friends. They tried to condemn him. As if he had committed a specific sin that warranted this horrible calamity. This is the worst mistake we can make. Imagine, a believer's faith is being tested. God is doing what's necessary to cause growth in their life. And then we come along and interpret it as punishment? Hey, that's a cruelty. Other people, though, react glibly. They see a friend going through the grinder. I mean, his kids hate him. His wife leaves him. His own dog bites him. He's denied the promotion because he's a Christian. And we say something glib. We just tell, well, just pray about it, brother. You know, try reading a psalm each day. Have you been taking vitamin C? I mean, your wife leaves you, your dog bites you, and what's vitamin C going to do for you? I mean, it's like prescribing salt tablets to a cancer patient. It's very little help. In fact, if you're suffering this morning and you read a psalm, I hope you read the right one. A lot of the psalms are spewing angst and erupting with vengeance and retaliation. They were written by people in far worse condition than you. How does Peter react to trials and suffering? He's not glib. 
He's not cruel. He's just honest. He's not trite. He's just truthful. A person who's going through it, here's what they need. They need a big dose of honesty. Clarity is what helps. And Peter provides us some here in verse 6. He states four truths about trials. First, he tells us that trials are momentary. Peter pins these words. Though now for a little while. If you're going through a trial this morning, understand. Here's good news. Understand, it won't last forever. In this life, trials are a constant. But there is more to our existence than just this life. Have you noticed that life is short? Life is so short. This is my son Max, senior season at South Gwinnett. And, and he's playing baseball. And the other night the boys were doing their post-game cleanup of the field. And Mac was on the tractor. He was dragging the infield. I was in the press box. And I just propped my feet up and I just sat there and I just watched him. And I thought, where did the time go? I mean, just yesterday he was playing in the dirt out in the backyard. Life is like a puff of warm breath on a cold winter day. It's here one second, then it's gone the next. And compared to eternity, oh my, it's even shorter. In light of eternity, the weeks and the months and the years that you're enduring right now, they're just a blip on the screen. If you suffered for 70 years, spent your whole life in pain and agony, and then died and went to heaven, a thousand years from now will make those first 70 seem pretty negligible. Sometimes a person will say, Oh man, I've had a hard life. So? I mean, be glad it was just a hard life. What's life? Big deal. You know, when a soldier dies in battle, or when a martyr dies for their faith, it's a reminder to us that there's some things more important than this life. The Bible teaches us that there's far more to living than life. There's a heaven and there's a hell. If you've had a hard life, just be, just really, here's what you really ought to avoid. A hard eternity. <laughs> I'll take a hard life over a hard eternity. How about that? I love the little old lady who was asked to name her favorite Bible verse. She replied, that's easy. It's Luke chapter 2 verse 1. And it came to pass. I'm so glad it came to pass and it didn't come to stay. Hey, trials and suffering, they're momentary. But notice the second truth about trials. They're mandatory. Peter tells us that trials come, and I quote him, if need be. Apparently, God deems them needed and necessary. It's the only way that we can learn certain lessons. I'm fond of the saying, it takes the manure... For us to mature. I thought about a picture there and then I decided against it. I'm sure you're glad. But it's true. It takes the manure for us to mature. Realize if there was any way 
If there was any way at all that God could have saved the world without Jesus suffering on the cross, don't you know God would have chosen that method? But there was only one solution for our sin. The cross was absolutely necessary. And so are the crosses in our lives. The trials and sufferings that we're called on to bear are for a reason. There are lessons that God knows we will never learn without experiencing some pain and some unpleasant circumstances. Remember, it grieved the Father to sacrifice His Son. And it pains God to watch you and I endure hardship. He gets no pleasure from either. The only reason He tolerates suffering is for its redeeming value. For there are some truths that we would never ever grasp unless they came with a test. When God calls on us to suffer, we may never learn the whole reason, but we can be sure that our trial is essential to the accomplishment of His plans. Well, here's a third truth about trials. They're pretty miserable. They produce a lot of misery. They're no fun at all. Peter tells us that we are grieved by trials. I hope you know that as a Christian, it's okay to be grieved. Did you know that as a Christian, it's okay to hurt? Feelings like disappointment and discouragement and sorrow and frustration, even anger at times, these aren't sins. It's okay to get bummed out. My, oh my, we live in a fallen world. We're all going to be bummed out from time to time. You know, sometimes we get the impression that Christians are, are supposed to be like Vulcans. Like Dr. Spock. You know, void of any emotion or expression or passion. It's as if the whole church is on Ritalin. Hey, God's called us to be dedicated, not medicated. You know, you know there's a pastor in Houston, Texas. He leads the largest church in America. But, but he refuses to say anything negative to his congregation. He never talks about sin or grief or trials or suffering. He obviously doesn't teach the Bible. You read it lately? God's Word is full of good godly people who endure some miserable conditions. As a Christian, you're going to have your moments, friend, when you grieve. When you're vexed and ruffled. And agitated and stretched. And you feel it. Peter says we're grieved by trials. And then notice the fourth truth about trials. Peter tells his readers that they've been grieved by various trials. Trials in this life will be manifold. There's the word. Manifold. The old King James renders it this way. Various trials. It uses the phrase manifold trials. The Greek word Peter used means variegated or multicolored. He's saying that trials come in different shapes, sizes, styles, and starts. Some trials are the result of our own sin. We, we, we've caused the problems for ourselves. So, sometimes we're innocent victims through no fault of our own. A loved one can cause a trial that we have to address. Still at other times, we're the target for Satan and his devils. 
I'll never forget the, the retreat Kathy and I took to the mountains one weekend. We just wanted to get away for a few days, you know, just spend a little time together. And we did. We had a wonderful time, a super time, until the last day. Right before we left, I was out on the deck of this little cabin we were staying in, and I sat down accidentally on a wasp. Stung me right on the tush, man. Oh, my, did it hurt. And I'll tell you, I was sick for the next three days. Every joint in my body ate, all due to a tiny little wasp. You know, actually, I've always suspected yeah. I've always suspected it was one of those yellow jackets, those little pests. They pop up from time to time and sting you. You know, sometimes trials sneak up on you. We don't even know they're there until suddenly they sting. At other times, they loom large in front of us. They're all we can see. Trials come from folks we know. Trials come from folks we don't. Trials come in a wide variety of forms and they strike in different ways. But notice what Peter says here in verse 7. It's important. All trials come for the same purpose. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the testing of our faith, it purifies us and it refines us. Peter uses the illustration of a goldsmith. He turns up the heat. He melts down the gold. Then he skims off the impurities that rise to the top. He repeats this procedure over and over until finally... He can see his reflection in the surface of the metal. That's when he knows that the gold is as pure as possible. And this is how Jesus works in us. He turns up the heat of adversity in our lives just a few degrees. Just enough to melt our pride and our self-sufficiency. And then he skims off the impurities from our character. And as the process is repeated over and over, the likeness of Jesus begins to form in our lives. Wow. L listen to a poem that sort of puts to rhythm the refiner's work. He's set by a furnace of sevenfold heat as he watched the precious ore. The closer he bent with a searching gaze, he heated it more and more. He knew he had ore that could stand the test and wanted the finest of gold to mold as a crown for the king set with gems of a price untold. And so he laid out gold in the burning fire though he wanted his hand to stay and he watched the dross we hadn't seen melt and pass away. But as the gold grew brighter, our eyes were dim with tears. We saw the fire, not the master's hand, and questioned with anxious fears. Our gold shone with a richer glow as it mirrored his form above. Though unseen by us, he bent over the fire with looks of indescribable love. Can we think it pleases his loving heart to cause us a moment of pain? Ah, no. But we saw through the present loss 
the bliss of eternal gain. So he waited with a watchful eye, with a love so strong and sure, and his goal did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. And I'm so moved by that last line. His gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. Maybe this morning you're in the crucible of trouble. God is testing the genuineness of your faith. Sure, you'll serve God when He blesses, when all is good. But what happens in the heat of adversity? How genuine is your faith? How sincere is your devotion? Tom was 15 years old and his kid brother Johnny was 11 when Tom decided to bless his little brother. I mean, Tom, he had this fort out in the backyard that he and his friends had built. It was a masterpiece of a fort. It was the envy of the neighborhood. But a 15-year-old, he's moving on. He's got adult concerns. He's not concerned about forts anymore. And so one Christmas... Tom told his brother that it was time for him to take possession of the fort. Johnny was so excited what he and his friends could do with this fort. But then on Christmas Eve, Tom dropped the bombshell. He said that he had changed his mind, that he was keeping the fort. Maybe he'd reconsider next year. A little 11-year-old, he was crushed. His first impulse was to cry or to throw a tantrum. But he stuffed back the tears and he He said all that he could. Okay. Well, on Christmas morning, there was a gift for Johnny from his 15-year-old brother. It was the key to the fort. And when Johnny saw the unexpected key, he spun around, and there he saw Tom grinning at him. The older brother explained the surprise. It was a test to see if you were ready to handle it. And you were. And this is what God does in our lives through trials. He tests the genuineness and the sincerity of our faith. Are we ready for the good stuff He wants to bestow on us? Can we handle the blessings that He's earmarked for you and me? Or do we need a little more refinement first? Should He turn up the heat again and repeat the process Hey, Peter says in verse 7, the goal ultimately is to be ready at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trials in your life have been stacked up and rearranged so that when Jesus returns, you'll be ready. That's the goal. And speaking of Jesus, notice verse 8. Whom having not seen, you love. You know, while walking on the water, Peter learned that the key to surviving the storms of this life is to keep your eyes on Jesus. But what if He's not seen? What if you don't see Him? It it reminds me of the college freshman's first day in science class. The professor walked in and he asked, All who believe in Jesus, stand up. Well, this freshman, he rose to his feet. The professor continued. He says, Can you feel or see or smell, or taste, or hear your God? The freshman replied, no, sir. Well, the prof snarled. Then you just sit down, because your God doesn't exist. Well, the new student, he was unmoved. Rather than sit down, he addressed the professor. He said, sir, may I ask you a question? Can you feel, or see, or smell, 
or taste or hear your brain? The cocky professor said, of course not. And so the student answered, well then, sir, would you please sit down? For your brain does not exist. (laughs) Well, you know the point. The point is, is that we all believe in realities that we can't relate to with just the five senses. Love and liberty and loyalty and humor and commitment and patriotism. These are all invisible realities. And yet we know they exist. And likewise with Jesus. We we can't relate to Jesus tangibly or physically, but, but we can sense His presence and His love in our hearts. And we can love Him in return. Helen Keller once said, The best and most beautiful things in life cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. And this is true of spiritual realities. We've never seen Jesus, but that shouldn't stop us from knowing Him and touching Him and loving Him. It's a shallow person who limits what he can believe to only what he sees with his eyes or to what he can put under a microscope. He's a narrow thinker. Faith opens up vistas that go beyond mere sight and sound. You know, skeptics love the term blind faith, but faith is far from blind. Faith sees more, not less. It observes spiritual realities, heavenly, eternal beauty. I like what C.H. Spurgeon once said, Little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Peter says in verse 8, Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know, while Jesus was on earth with his disciples, they were overwhelmed with joy. Can you imagine living your life with Jesus? I mean, it was a 24-7 feast. It was a perpetual party. Can you imagine the daily rush of watching his miracles, of seeing Jesus work and, and change lives day after day after day? What joy. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus compared him and his disciples to newlyweds at a reception. There they are. He he said, living with Jesus was similar to the giddiness of of lovebirds. Free birds turn lovebirds. There they are. Wow. But now, Peter no longer sees Jesus. He follows his Lord not by sight, but by faith. And yet, He's having just as much fun. It's just as thrilling as when Jesus was on earth. Peter still rejoiced with a joy that words can't describe. His life was still full of glory. When Jesus departed, the rejoicing never stopped. But what kept the party going? Jesus was no longer seen, but he continued to be sensed. What continued to fuel the fire of the disciples' joy? Here's the answer. It was the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God took up where Jesus left off. In Scripture, the Holy Spirit is described as new wine. He brings joy and laughter and vitality to life. The Holy Spirit is the divine bubbly. He adds sparkle. The Holy Spirit is the believer's buzz. He is the source of our joy even when life gets hard. 
The Holy Spirit can bring joy unspeakable and full of glory. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out on the disciples, they received this joy inexpressible and full of glory. And if you want a joy that baffles description, then ask Jesus to fill you with the Holy Spirit. You need to do that today. Before you leave this room today, ask Jesus to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And He will. He will. The Spirit will reveal Jesus to you if you believe. And don't just have faith. Continue in your faith. For Peter tells us in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, here's what can happen to us. A person is coaxed to Christ. They're converted. Their sin and their need for a Savior combine to stir up a faith in Jesus. But then that faith gets tested. And it's inevitable. It happens. And he or she is not ready for the test or they misinterpret the test. And faith gets derailed. If you assume that Jesus died on the cross to end all your troubles and make your life a bed of roses, then the trial you face is going to mean to you that he's failed to live up to his end of the deal. And if that's your assumption, your faith will fizzle. Your faith will grow flatter than a three-week-old bottle of Coca-Cola. Faith needs to remember that even though the trial is causing us some grief, it's only a test. It's not a real emergency. It's just a test. And at best, it'll last just a little while. And it's absolutely needed. And it's refining your faith. In fact, I'm going to go one step further this morning. I'm going to push you this morning because some of you need to ditch your baby faith and you need some real grown-up faith. So I'm issuing a challenge to you. Your faith doesn't just need to remember, it needs to rejoice. You need to greatly rejoice for the trial that God is allowing in your life. And here's why. Because it's purposeful. I like that word. That trial that you're, you're hating, that you're grieving over. Understanding God's plan, it is purposeful and you need enough faith to rise up and rejoice in that trial not because you like to grieve but because you believe that God is working good through that experience this is the essence my friend of Christian faith at the cross of Jesus we learned that grieving precedes glory and that pain blossoms into pleasure. And that life springs from death. But if you don't believe it in your own life, how can you say you have true faith? Without seeing, we believe. Having not seen, we love. When you scan the surface of your life and all you see is trouble, that means you need to dive deeper. And you need to find the living Lord Jesus. You need to plug into the power of the Holy Spirit. And you need to rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter is pleading with us here. 
Don't let the trials trip you up and steal your joy. With just a little bit of faith, you can learn to see your trials as reasons to rejoice. Peter says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. I like this. You know, the New Testament, it it speaks of salvation in different phases. When we first trust in Jesus, we're saved from the penalty of sin. As we grow in Christ and walk with Christ, we're free from the power of sin. Then when we reach heaven, we're saved from this wicked world and the predicament of sin. We're saved from the penalty and the power and the predicament of sin. But at every stage, our part is the same. It's faith. We're to believe. That means that faith is not a one-time deal. Faith is like a muscle. You feed it, and you grow it, and you exercise it, or it withers and it dies. This is why Peter assures us, cultivate your faith, continue in your faith, and it will eventually bring to pass the salvation of your soul. And then he speaks of our salvation in verse 10. He says, of this salvation the prophets have inquired And searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Peter adds that our salvation is the same salvation that was foretold by the Old Testament prophets. Holy men predicted the time and the sufferings and the glories of the coming Messiah. And all these prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus. 300 plus prophecies in all identified Jesus as the Messiah. Micah 5 predicted Jesus' birthplace. Daniel 9, the very day he would present himself to the nation. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 were written by men living hundreds of years before Jesus, and yet they're eyewitness reports of his sufferings on the cross. Isaiah 65 and 66, as well as other verses, describe his future glory. Peter concludes here in verse 12. He says, To these prophets it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. God ministered to these prophets, not just to their local situation, but with future generations in mind. Not just to Jews in time past and in faraway locales, but these prophets wrote to us today, to you, to me. And we're not their only audience. Check this out. Peter finishes verse 12 by labeling the Old Testament prophecies as things which angels desire to look into. Did you know that there, somewhere today, out there in the universe today, there are angels that are trying to figure out our salvation? They're intrigued by our salvation. There are cherubim and seraphim out there today, who are wondering why God has gone to such great extremes to forgive and refine the likes of us. Recently, my wife Kathy, she's gotten into crossword puzzles. And I'm finding these little crossword puzzles all over the house. They're usually about halfway done. But she's into these crossword puzzles. 
And apparently, a favorite angel pastime is to try to figure out why God loves the little human so much. They just sit around and they debate this and they, and they talk about this all the time. Over the eons of time, angels have marveled at the mystery of God's love for the little mud daubers called man. Think of what we look like to the angels. We were made from the dirt. We returned to the dirt. Though we have been stamped with God's image, all too often we're dirty in the way we think and act. And I'm sure to majestic angels... We are pretty unimpressive. And angels are puzzled why God would suffer and die for one of us. And I can't blame them. But here's the big takeaway from this passage. Notice, angels desire to look into salvation. But that's all they can do is look. And probe. And just contemplate. They can't participate. Salvation is not for angels. Those who rebelled and fell with Satan, they're lost forever. Friend, salvation is for you. And your family. And your friends. This is why you can't lose out. You can't miss the opportunity to have faith and to know Jesus. Angels envy the love that God has shown us and the access He offers to us. It boggles their minds that God treats us with such goodness and they blow a gasket when they see you reject God's grace. They can't figure that out. How could they? Peter knows that the number one obstacle to our faith is suffering. And he's telling us in this passage, don't let trials trip you up. We need clarity. Remember the cross and rejoice that the genuineness of your faith is tested by fire, that it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Guys, trials are manifold. And trials are miserable. But trials are mandatory if you really want to grow. And don't forget, trials are momentary. That helps to remember. When life gets really hard, really hard, remember the cross and rejoice in this truth. It's just a test. It's only a test.